So this week and next week um, is probably going to be helpful for you to have a Bible with you or to grab a Bible, because uh, we're going to be looking over large chunks of text. I'll st- you'll still be able to follow stuff if you don't. Um, but I do want to spend two weeks in the first two chapters of Matthew and, and sort of move through those chapters. And I think it'll just be helpful because we're not going to be able to look at every jot and tittle of the first two chapters, but what we can do is kind of get an overview and look at larger patterns. Christmas is always really challenging to figure out, in one sense, what to teach on. As ironic as that might sound, pastors struggle a lot with Christmas uh, and Easter, but I think Christmas even more so. And that's because there's such a cultural familiarity and sentimentality connected to Christmas. It's very challenging to figure out how to move into and through uh, the Christmas account such that it's fresh for us. Um, That familiarity, sort of the the picturesque nativity scenes, we sort of fill in some of the blanks in our own minds of what that first Christmas was like. And that can actually be a barrier to encountering the truth of the Christmas event in a really visceral way. Uh, It actually takes a fair amount of work to divest the Christmas story of a lot of its idyllic imagery and romanticism and sort of like the the, the warm, soft Thomas Kincaid glow and to enter it with, um, I think, some some of the harshness and the grittiness that helps us to get a hold of it. But that work is made easier, however, when things are not going well in our lives. And so if this is a Christmas, as you move towards Christmas, as you're in the Advent season, for whatever reason, if things are not going well for you, um, the good news is it's actually a little bit, well, it's much easier to connect with the Christmas story. Um, Famed rocker, uh, Christian rocker Larry Norman, I remember one of the lyrics from a song that I uh, think about often. He He just said, you know, the darker it is, the easier it is to see the light. And that's a truth that we don't always want to be true, but but it often is. It's in the midst of doubt and discouragement and loss and grief and disorientation that we actually realize, oh, I need a light. I'm fumbling around in the darkness, and I'm not able to navigate these waters on my own. And so in that sense, pain and hardship and confusion can be an opening for us to seek God in a fresh way and to enter into the story in a fresh way. Because this is a story that begins with an enormous amount of pain, confusion, disorientation. Um, one of the phenomenon that is connected to this idea that the darker it is, the easier it is to see the light, is, uh, we've talked about this before, how many, just by a show of hands, you've heard the term deconstruction? Right, that's sort of like a, fancy philosophical word that essentially means it can mean anything from people um, wrestling and grappling with their faith all the way to deconverting to sort of picking apart every uh, perceived uh, weakness with the Christian faith and basically saying the whole thing is a joke. So it's it's a pretty broad term and you often have to ask people what do they mean by deconstruction when they mention that. But uh, one of the things that has happened over the last number of years is there has been a, whether at least the perception that there's a lot of people deconstructing um, in our communities, in our churches, 
And yet, there's also been an interesting inversion of deconstruction. There's been a lot of prominent people who have been firmly established in the anti-Christian camp for a long time that are now finding faith and being baptized or certainly warming significantly to the idea that not just that there's a God, but maybe Christianity is genuinely unique. Maybe there is something true here. And maybe the the impulse to dismiss and to ignore it and to minimize it and to mock it and to scoff at it was actually a terrible mistake. One of the most recent prominent people to convert to Christianity is Kat Von D. She rose to prominence um, by being one of the first kind of tattoo artist influencers on LA Inc. in like the early 2010s. And she was heavily, uh, on her Instagram, heavily... Um, heavily promoted witchcraft, new age stuff. And uh, she was recently baptized and did an interview with Ali Beth Stuckley on the Relatable podcast. And the whole podcast is actually it's an amazing interview with Kat Von D. But I wanted to show one particular clip because there's a line that she says in it that I think really helps us move into these first two chapters in Matthew. So we'll play the, the clip now. <laughs> So in 2020, when you posted that, you said that you saw those as crutches and all you wanted was was Jesus. So at that point, you were a Christian. Yeah. Oh, yeah. Okay. So when did that happen? Probably like a, a year before that. A year before that. So let's talk about that a little yeah. bit. How did, how did you become a Christian out of the world of just kind of spiritualism? So funny, it was, funny enough, I kind of blame my husband or give him the credit. Um, he, it was during like right before... Uh, right when the lockdowns happened um, was I came downstairs and he just said, Hey baby, I think we got it wrong. You know, I think we got a lot of things wrong. And I was like, no, no, you know, and I, I was never like a a politically charged person. I would say um, like ignorant political things just out of like, uh, you know, because I don't watch TV. I don't like really know. I mean, I would see like whatever my friends would post or things like that, but I was never like, I, I couldn't tell you, who's in office or anything like that, you know, at the time. And then, so my husband was like, Hey, like, I want, I want to show you some stuff, you know, like it would be some articles and some videos and stuff. And I was like, Oh man, like I really got to start rethinking a lot of things that I thought were true, you know? And that was kind of the the first step into questioning everything I had been doing. Yeah. Um, Was it mostly, we don't have to get into the details on this, but like, the stuff that he was showing you, did it, because you said it was around the lockdowns. Yeah. Was it mostly regarding that kind of thing, or was it more theological in nature, the things that he was talking about? I, he, no, it was, like, revolving more around, like, political things. And, um, and you know, you have to understand at that time, like, like BLM was going hard and, in L.A., and I was in the middle of it. Like, I lived three doors down from the mayor of L.A., so yeah. we had Antifa, like, on our front yard, yeah. you know, after they threatened to, like do the Molotov cocktails and stuff like right. that. And like, you know, so we were just like seeing things in real time and, and they were much worse in real life than I think what people even put on TV. And yeah. so, so I was like, man, maybe like, you know, so I started just kind of like reevaluating kind of going down the list of what I'm doing with my life and like what my perspectives are. And then it got to the part of like my spirituality. And that's where I started really rethinking a lot of things. And so I, um, I think a friend had sent me 
a sermon from Pastor Jack Hibbs, and I, I loved it. Like, it really spoke to me, and, and like, it answered a lot of questions that I had. And so then I started that, my, my, my son at the time was, like, still a baby, so I wasn't going to church, but I would, we would watch, like, sermons every Sunday. And, um, and so that was kind of like, I just desired more and more and more. And so I just started studying the Bible. And, um, and it was like, I think it was, um, it's, it's so cool to be able to do it as an adult. You know, I think like, I was very lucky that I had parents that were Christian and forced certain things at, at a time when I couldn't understand things, even though it wasn't as effective. Like, I do credit my dad for everything because I remember finding myself in very dark moments and like it, intuitively I was praying, Yeah, you know, and it wasn't because, uh, my dad made me like, it was because I, he was, cause, cause he'd been waiting. That's yeah. all, you know? And so like when you can fall in love and learn as an adult, it's so much more meaningful and real than it is when you're a child just doing it because this is what we do, you know, and this is, um, this is how we do it, you mm -hmm. know? I love that recognition that, um, discovering the Bible as an adult is kind of like a complete game changer. Um, because if you've been raised in the church, or even if you haven't, often what you hear, second or third hand, is a very childish, reductionistic, simplistic summation that kind of goes through a bunch of people who, um, to varying degrees, don't really know what they're talking about. And so by the time you hear something about the scriptures, it's very easy to kind of be like, oh, that just sounds silly and ridiculous. And that challenge is also there with Christmas, because again, we're surrounded by iconography that sort of allows us to feel like, yeah, I kind of know the story. I kind of see what's going on. And I would really encourage us, it doesn't have to be Matthew's gospel. Uh, first few chapters of Luke, Matthew, and the first chapter of John, those gospels give slightly different accounts uh, of the Christmas event from different angles. But I'd really encourage you, if you haven't started it yet, to just read through them over and over and over and over again. And try to come at them as... Um, as open-minded as you possibly can to, and really pray. Say, God, I want to see what's here. I want to see the sophistication that is here because these are actually really sophisticated texts. The Bible contains 66 books by at least 40 authors. It's written in three different languages. It's um, describing the events that take place over three different continents. It's written over a period of 1,500 years. It has hundreds of characters, lots of genres. Sometimes it's narrative, sometimes it's historical, sometimes you've got uh, this apocalyptic narrative with flying beasts with multi uh, wings and eyes. And then there are love poems. And in general, in our culture, we don't read books that are this complex anymore. But it's important to. And it's important for us to enter into the Christmas story saying, okay, what are we reading? What's going on here? And the Christmas story presents itself right out of the gate as something which is historical and grounded in reality, an actual event. First two chapters of Matthew, we'll just kind of move through these very, very quickly. You've got the genealogy of Jesus. 
And this is the part that you guys don't read at Christmas. You just kind of skip right over it. Then you go to the sort of like, oh, here's the real start. It's the birth of Jesus. And in Matthew's gospel, the birth of Jesus focuses a lot more on Joseph. Um, and the angel's visitation to Joseph, the angel telling Joseph that the child that Mary is with is from the Holy Spirit. And that you, meaning Joseph, the angel says, you are to name him Emmanuel, which means God with us. And then in chapter 2, the tension points that have been bubbling up over the last number of uh, decades and even centuries between the close of the Old Testament, which was 400 years before the arrival of Jesus, start to come to the surface. You get the visit of the Magi, which again, we probably have a picture of what that looks like in our mind's eye. And then we have the escape to Egypt, where Joseph is warned in a dream that Herod is searching for the child because this Herod, this puppet king, who technically has the title king of the Jews, has been informed by the Magi that there's a new king of the Jews that have been born. And the Magi are like, hey, can we come and worship him? And Herod's like, uh, sure. And when you find him, let me know, because I would also like to go and worship him. And so the Magi are also warned to flee because of Herod's bloodthirst. Uh, you have Herod killing the children, uh, but a Magi visit Herod probably about a year after Jesus is born, a year and a half. And so Herod says, every child born um, in and around Bethlehem that's two years or younger, they get slaughtered, which probably wasn't a huge amount of children numerically. Some you know, scholars say because of the size of, of Bethlehem at the time, 20 to 40, but obviously you have this tremendous wake of destruction and darkness. Um, and then uh, Joseph and Mary and the baby Jesus flee to Egypt for a time until that Herod dies, and then the angel says, you can return. And so they come up out of Egypt. Now, just getting that overview, we haven't actually gone into, you know, verses, but just getting that overview, is there anything that for you, you have questions about or stands out to you or is maybe something narratively that you hadn't noticed before? And you might have to just wave your hand because it's harder for me to see up here with the, the lights in my eyes. Anything stand out? I can't tell. Yeah, yeah, totally. Yeah. Yeah, yeah, there's this, there's this theme of encroaching darkness that Luke and, uh, well, no, that's not true. John and Luke and Matthew sort of all play with this theme of darkness. And this light is coming to pierce this darkness. But the darkness doesn't have one source. It's layered, right? I mean, what are the different levels of darkness that you see here? Let's start with Herod. Herod's threat. So what, what level of darkness is that? Like what realm of society would that be? I don't know if I'm framing that as well as I could. I mean, that would be political darkness, right? I mean, you have Herod, who is, to 
tyrannical. You study Herod in history, you can Google Herod. The guy is, especially later in his reign, he is incredibly bloodthirsty and ruthless in terms of keeping power. He, was, um, he and his son were tremendously powerful. You have the political tension point that Israel right now is ruled by the Roman Empire, a bunch of pagans who don't believe in God. There's high taxation. Luke talks about that. They have to go back to their um, place of birth so that they could register to be taxed. So there's massive economic darkness and there's spiritual darkness. God's people haven't heard from any prophet for 400 years. Um, so there's a sense of, has God abandoned us? What hope do we have? We were told that some kind of Messiah is coming and now it's just sort of the story seems to have dropped off the edge of a cliff. And all we're seeing for centuries is just the encroachment of pagan nations and more and more persecution of the Jewish people. So yeah, there's a lot of moving parts. A um, few high-level things that I want you to notice as you go back into it this week, and then we'll dive into some details next week. Matthew starts the gospel with the genealogy of Jesus. He says, this is the genealogy of Jesus, the, the Messiah, the son of David, the son of Abraham. Does anyone, have they ever learned or would they even um, be willing to guess, why would Matthew start with a genealogy? That is not a very exciting way to start um, the story behind this is the son of God coming in human form. Any ideas or what have you heard about why would Matthew start with the genealogy? Yeah, so we're pulling back and saying this story, like don't just start at the manger. Don't just start with the manger and, and uh, you know, some of the wise men and don't start with that picture. This is, this is there's backstory here. It's where we're coming from. And you kind of need to know a bit of that story. And Matthew's writing to a Jewish audience, so he assumes they're very familiar with the Old Testament scripture, and so he invokes two of the most important covenants in the Old Testament, covenant given to David, covenant given to Abraham, Abraham the father of the Jewish people. Matthew is pulling us back to say, this is a new development in a big and ongoing story. And it points to God's faithfulness, especially during our time when it felt like God was on radio silence for a long time. Right? I, I, have, I have experienced God on radio silence in my life for long stretches of time. And it's in those times where there's not a word, there's not a prompt, there's not a feeling, there's uh, maybe scripture feels like it's a bit flat, your prayers feel like they hit the ceiling. Um, those are times where we need to press into the truth that God is faithful. And just because I don't notice or perceive or feel like anything's happening, God is working. And so right away, this genealogy establishes the fact that God is faithful and that this is part of a larger story. Notice also, uh, and a few commentators uh, pick up on this, Matthew's gospel does not start once upon a time. Part of what you do, part of what you're doing in a genealogy is saying, what's about to be disclosed happened in real time. Here's the place, here are the people, here's the lineage. This is 
an ancient way of grounding the, what follows in reality. This is not a myth. This is not a fairy tale. Matthew is writing. Luke will say, I compiled this information from eyewitnesses. And so this genealogy, while it might strike us as boring, it's actually really important to hear and to feel the claim of what is coming through here. That we need to understand this is an event that actually happened in history. In the next section, when um, Joseph is visited by the angel, in verse 23, uh, verse 22 and 23, it says, All of this took place to fulfill what the Lord had said through the prophet. The virgin will conceive and give birth to a son, and they will call him Emmanuel. Jews expected a Messiah, an anointed one, someone who was going to rescue them from the oppression of their enemies, and in this case, Rome, to put them on the top of the national hierarchy. But the angel tells Joseph to give Jesus the name Emmanuel. And that means God with us. And that means that thing, this thing that happened was about God himself becoming a human being. And depending on where you sit in terms of your worldview, that idea can be really hard to hold with any sense of, yeah, that kind of makes sense to me. Eastern religions are pantheistic. They believe that there's a little kind of a God suffuses everything. There's God in everyone. And there are some people who are unique avatars who have somehow tapped into a greater God conscious and they're a lowercase g God. Then you have Roman or Greek um, worldviews that say, well, there's many gods. And sometimes those gods kind of pop down to earth and they dress up as human beings and they kind of go around in disguise and they make a lot of mischief most of the time. Christianity says God, the one true God, condescended, came low, incarnated, put on flesh, fully human, he didn't set aside um, humanity or his divinity, fully God, fully human, and became one of us. And I don't think we can appreciate how, what's the word? It's not, um, there's nothing in the Jewish worldview at that time that really would have anticipated this. Everyone's waiting for a Messiah to come, someone great, but not God, God himself. And Jews wouldn't even have thought that was possible because there's one true God and he dwells in unapproachable light. How could God himself? So even in this account, this is not an attractive message to Gentiles or Jews. It's very strange. It's tremendously um, provocative. Then we have the visit of the Magi. And let me push you there. You have these Magi. That we're not told how many there are. There's three gifts, but that doesn't mean there's only three of them. These are astrologers from the east. They're part of the Parthian Empire, which is modern-day uh, parts of Iraq and Iran. And they see this light or the star 
and they follow it and they've been following it for months and they arrive and they find the child and they give the child gifts. Um, what does the visit of the Magi communicate about the significance of Jesus? Any ideas there? It's not just for the Jews. That's right. The Jews were excited for their Messiah to come and establish them as the nation. They had a very ethnocentric view of um, very tribal view, understandably. God had taken them and made them a people. But right away, we're seeing that this isn't just a gift for the Jews. This is a gift for the whole world. And just like God, um, we're not called to seek these things. Uh, we're not called to participate in these things. But God can take those who are seeking uh, and entrapped in things like astrology or New Age and draw them. Just like he did Kat Von D, does it with these magi. He draws people to himself. This is a gift for the entire world. You have this escape to Egypt. And there's this parallel, right, between the massacre of Herod's massacre on the infants and Pharaoh's massacre of the firstborn in Egypt. So right away you're getting this um, to a Jewish, Jewish person, not so subtle illusion that Jesus is going to be like a kind of new Moses. And just like Israel was called up out of Egypt, Hosea 11.1, uh, that's invoked in verse 15, out of Egypt, I called my son. In the Old Testament, the son referred to Israel, but here it's referring to Jesus. That there's this divine protection in play. I won't be the first preacher, you've probably heard this, but I think it's important. Um, if you start on the premise that this is something true that happened that this is God who has come in human form in a way that stretches beyond the ability of our imagination to hold and apprehend fully, then there really are sort of two reactions in this account, in Matthew's account, that are appropriate to a claim of that stature. You've got the, you've got the wise men who come and they worship Jesus. The text says that. They worshiped him. You don't worship a Messiah. You would worship a God, and they worship him. And then what's Herod's reaction? What's Herod's reaction to the news that feels tremendously threatened? He has power. He has royalty. He's been designated as the king of the Jews, as an underpuppet through Caesar. There's pride welling up. There's an immediate defensiveness that says, not on my watch. And maybe as we move towards Christmas, we can do some reflection, maybe some journaling, maybe some praying and think, what is my sort of core reaction to this news? Do I, I mean, I guess there's a third, you know, you've got the reaction of, could this be real? I don't understand it, but I'm going to enter into worship. I'm going to submit. Do you think it was easy for Joseph to hear from the angel? Your wife's pregnant. It's come from God. He's going to protect you. These visions and these dreams. I and mean, that's a huge amount of submission and trust that has to go into it. 
the social stigma that's going to come from that, that is alluded to a little bit more in Luke's account of the Christmas story. The trust that it takes, they didn't have it figured out, but there's this recognition, God is faithful. God has been faithful for our people. He's faithful to his promises. I don't have to understand how this is working out, but I do have to trust God and take the next right step in front of me. Is that our reaction? Is our reaction to actually worship and embrace this child as Emmanuel? Or is it like Herod, where we hear this news that in a lot of ways, we're sort of comfortable with life on our terms. And it's not perfect, but we like the control. We like the power. We like the false sense of security that comes from saying, I've got enough money, I've got enough skills, I've got enough fill in the blank, and now I can sort of manage my own life. And we sort of push Christmas to be, oh, that's that's nice, that's cute, that is, um, mm. it's, it's a kind of, it's a nice idea that God would love us and want to kind of, Come close. And I guess the third option is you just mock the whole thing. Again, you have a, a very childish understanding of what the text is pushing on you and uh, compelling you to believe. And you kind of just say, well, no, this is all just silly. I mean, this is ridiculous. Virgin birth, uh, dumb, scoff at it. And there really only are those three choices with this story. Because the stakes are so high and the revelatory thrust of it is so massive. You can't sort of just be indifferent to Christmas unless you're just going to numb out completely. I want to invite you to meditate on verse 23 of chapter 1, that he shall be called Emmanuel. God is with us and God is for us. God has come. And this is what makes Christianity really, really different. Again, there's a lot of people who hand wave a lot of religious stuff out of the way with statements like, well, all religions basically just say the same thing. And the whole point of it is basically just be a good person. And, and that's there's, you know, a little bit of tweaks about what exactly that looks like, but just, just be a loving, kind person. And that's kind of the message of Christmas. That's, that is not the message of Christmas. That's not even the implication of the title, God with us. Every other religion says, our founder is an amazing teacher. They have an insight into reality that other people don't have. And their code of morality and their pattern of goodness is enough to reach God. So follow that pattern. Enact that uh, moral system. Every other religion says, our founder was a great teacher. And if you live that way, you will find God. You will get to God. You will ascend to the heavens. And every other religion, again, in different ways, they might not use the word morality and goodness, they might use practice, they might use um, different words, but it comes down to living by a certain code of morality, a certain practice, and seeking after goodness, that's sufficient. And that's the point. But Christianity is so different. It's so different. It says morality is good. Seeking after goodness is good but you will never reach God through those means. God has to come to us. We can't get to God. God has to come to us. And God has to come to us, not as an example. The Jewish people already had the law. They already had the morality. They already had the pursuit of what glorifies God and what is good. What they needed was saving. What they needed was saving. 
from their own darkness. And that's one of the really striking things about Christianity is that at its heart, it proclaims that your situation, and I'm pointing the finger at myself, our situation, it's so dire that simply a new or a fancy or a more clarified moral system and a a greater commitment to religiosity, whatever that looks like, whether Western, Eastern, Indigenous, but that that is enough. And it's like, no, the unique son of God had to come, had to live for us the life that we couldn't live for ourselves. And we're ultimately going to see has to die in our place. And then through his resurrection, offer hope in an actual pathway for reconciliation and forgiveness. The unique son of God himself had to come and die for you. And you have to put your faith and your hope and your trust in him. Three broad reactions to the Christmas story. You can scoff at it and dismiss it as something childish and fanciful and fairy tale-ish, even though it presents itself as anything but. You can allow your heart to burn with resistance, like Herod's, and say, no, this is my life. I will live on my terms. I'm going to be the king or the queen of my own life. And you will suffocate anything in your life that is good, the farther you go down that road. Or you can approach this event and this account with humility and with an openness to see things that you never saw before about God, about yourself, about the world. Let's make this a Christmas where our eyes are open past sentimentality, past warm fuzzies, and we actually encounter Emmanuel, God with us. Let's pray.